Okay, so this is something that has kind of been in my head for a while. Um, and it, it's this, it, it's a concept. Um, it's the concept in art of whether an individual work has more power being part of a series or if an individual work has more power being a standalone item. And I can give a couple of examples. Um, let's, uh, and I'm going to start with architecture. So if we think of, um, uh, if we think of the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., that big, long granite V monolith. that has all the names on it, right? Um, well, it's not quite a monolith. It's a, but yeah. yeah, but yes, a big, long, single piece. And we think of that and how there really isn't, there wasn't anything that was really before it. And part of it's the V and part of it's how it's in a hillside and it, that part of it, that, that part of the, the concept where there are some pieces that came along after that, but there aren't other pieces that are part of a series. That's not part of a series of memorials. It's not a part of a series of, of stuff that is like that. Yeah. It is a single piece versus a Frank Geary um, museum somewhere, right? Um, uh-huh. So you've got the curved stainless Dime steel. Dime a dozen. Dime a dozen, really, exactly. So now I, I'll, I'll say I really love looking at Geary's stuff, but I'm not overwhelmed that, oh, I get to go see a Geary. You know what I mean? Um, I, and to me, it's almost, yeah, been there, done that, seen that. You know, I, there needs to be one of those in the world. And then it's monumental versus um, now one of the things that we do uh, and I'll, I'll take it to another part of art since we're, you know, considerably more rooted in the two dimensional part of art. If, if we go to, um, you know, 110 different versions of the Rouen cathedral um, or haystacks, or do you know where it's, a very similar thing done over and over and over as part of a series. And if you own one of the Rouen Cathedral pieces, then it's part of that series and we recognize it as part of that series. So it has a value. But if you look at some of those, they're just, I I can't look at them. And there are other ones that just captivate me. Um, do you do you guys what what are your thoughts on that concept about art as part of a series art as a one off? So I'm going to speak directly to the Maya Lin piece that you talked about, the huh? Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, that was a breakout piece by a very young uh, artist who it was her first big commission. And uh-huh. and it made this very very strong statement on many levels but 
if you look at the rest of Maya Lin's work, uh, which I I follow, she she is somebody who is above all interested in the, the power of addressing a specific site. So all of her work over time, you can see continuity through it, but each piece is very much tailored to a specific site and therefore never sort of steps on, the, you know, it isn't repetitive. She just, she doesn't repeat herself. And that's a, I think a wonderful thing. And it's interesting because there is continuity. There is a sense that it's a series, but because the work is so attuned to its surroundings, each piece is very unique. And then there's a side note I wanted to mention that I think uh, Ethan will like. She does her topographical design work using big books of paper or real books. <laughs> and she cuts she cuts away paper page by page to form a three-dimensional topographical map of a site. It's a really beautiful way to work. And so yeah. can you picture what I mean? It's like Oh, absolutely. So the valley is like page a thousand and the top of the mountain is page one, you know, and uh, it's a it's a really, really interesting. And she's she uses this method to define, you know, the form of a landscape she's she's in, uh, inventing or creating. Anyway, in that in that sense, site specific work is sort of by nature, usually, you know, each piece stands on its own because no two sites are identical, except, of course. Right. If you're talking about Walmart in a parking lot, well, those are identical sites, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, but you know, a site that has individuality and gives power to the art, and and the art gives power to the site, and there's a back and forth. Um, then I think the standalone thing makes sense. On the other hand, I think there's a perfectly good argument for the power of series. Uh, so. There are artists who make the same thing over and over again, but by placing it in a new place, it takes on new meaning. So, yeah, you can do it both ways. Um, uh, Ethan, what do you uh, what's your, what's your thought on this? Yeah, kind of like uh, Nick's final assessment on this, which is that like some things belong in a series and some things don't. Uh, certainly, like when I have taken pictures. Um, there are some of my photos that I really love that are just singles. And, and the, actually, sometimes the singles lead to a series because I love it and I try and recreate it a million times. Often, uh, I have this series of Roadkill, uh, which was sparked by one excellent photo and nothing else really compares to that first one. I think it is a better standalone. But, you know, if you're trying to tell a story, uh, one of my favorite photo books is East 100th Street by Bruce Davidson, which is about the street I went to middle school on and you know each one of those photos are uh excellent but not so powerful right? you don't know what it's about but he he tells a, a story through you know about 80 or 100 photos that are really well thought out and um yeah I mean I guess it depends what you're trying to do it's uh maybe a little apples to oranges um certainly I would like to see a series where all of the photos are good <laughs> would stand on their own, but sometimes, you know, you just need um, something descriptive that that fills out the series, um, even if it wouldn't stand on its own. And so, you know, I think it's you know one versus the other is it's a silly uh, contest to have, right? It's an interesting thing to think about, um, but it's sure. you know. Uh, what do I prefer? I don't know. And, you know, we were actually talking about this uh, on Saturday when, when we were on our call 
about camera making, right, is mm-hmm. um, one of the things I really enjoy is just just because of my ethos about how I want cameras to work and how I want uh, how I want them to perform and like I basically that ethos is I want them to do what they're supposed to do and have no extra anything on them. Um, yeah. You know, crazy colors. Sure. But, but I, I try and be very Bauhaus about the, the uh, materials that I'm using and, and function first. Right. And because of that, a lot of my cameras wound up looking the same and they have formed a series. And I, I like, I love series in in any sort of art or sculpture or engineering where, um, you know, industrial design, where you can see the ethos or the the philosophy behind the designer or the designs, you know, one thing to another. It's like, you know, there's some brawn razor that like also matches some cameras and also matches some pens that were, you know, made in the, I don't know, 30s through the 60s. Um, The other thing is... There's a kind of metaphoric power there. So the pen that looks like a rocket takes on a lot of mm-hmm. meaning, you know. Sure. And then yeah. the other thing we were talking about is like um, mostly the cameras I like are um, good cameras. They do what they're supposed to do well. But the cameras that get attention are not necessarily the best of a certain type of camera, but the first, right? So I'd much prefer a Leica M4 to the original Leica 1, but the Leica 1 was like nothing before it, right? And and so right. I think in terms of like garnering, um, you know, press attention and, and the ability to sell things, you know, certainly they sold a lot of M4s, but um, that, that first Leica 1, you know, it was groundbreaking and something totally new and not part of a series at that point. And it was, you know, highly celebrated and, and very, you know, uh, people were very interested in it. And it was very copied and improved upon by Leica themselves and, you know, Canon and Nikon and every other camera manufacturer out there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I like when things develop into a series, but I also like, uh, especially when when the germ of that series is just something that was meant to stand on its own, that just mm-hmm. had had such value uh, that it sort of continued through the rest of the series. In, with, evolu- in evolutionary with, terms, that's how speciation works, right? You, absolutely. <laughs> right. right. Okay. So uh, in product design, so we've got a couple of different approaches to that within the scope of this, uh, you know, of our podcast. So, if you are, you know, if this is truly homemade camera podcast, then you make each one to its own function, right? Um, you you make each one to its own aesthetic um, based on its function and its niche and its, you know, what it's what it's doing in the world versus um, if we're, you know, if if we're making um a series of cameras um that are uh that look like they're all designed by the same person one of the things that i have to constantly tell talk my students and reinforce with my students is that um if they're doing if they're designing a booklet so they're designing a uh, a brochure they're designing a um, a pamphlet or something like that. Everything 
within that design needs to look like it is designed by the same person so that you can't go off and wildly do uh, different things. Let's talk about in web design, we have a lot of icons, little, little, you know, uh, rounded rectangular things that uh, stand in for words and are links to things and, and stuff like that. And one of the things it, it, that we need to do when we're designing those is we need to keep within the, like the same visual weight. You can't have an outline of a camera in one icon and then a filled in microphone on another icon because that filled in microphone is going to have a heavier visual weight because there's more ink or more pixels that are devoted to that. And if they're sitting next to each other, they don't look equal. Um, so, um, you know, that's a long roundabout way of saying that, you know, when you're doing product design, it needs to look like it's coming from your company, like an Apple product looks like it's coming from Apple because that is one of their core values as a company that's, you know, Steve Jobs, that was, you know, still his legacy is that it's got to look like an Apple product. And, you know, even though there's been an evolution over the years, once they got to that um, titanium power book, that was the, that's what we've been looking at forever. You know, the rounded corners, the brushed metal, um, uh, darkened uh, glass bezels, um, all of those things are all based on that one design. Um, similarly, you should be able to, if a car passes you and you don't see the, the, the badges, you should be able to tell whether it's a Ford or a Maserati, right? Um, and it's funny you bring that up. Uh, I was actually just talking to Lucas Landers a little while ago who couldn't tell me very much about what he's doing, but he went to go work for Apple on the iPad and was telling me, um, about how well acquainted he was with that rounded bezel on Apple products and mechanical yeah. design goes into it. It's very interesting. Yeah. So I, I you know, another, another thought from what you were saying earlier, Graham, that the icons you're talking about on the screen, uh, the most, the closest visual equivalent I can think of are the, the paint jobs on medieval shields that are basically oh, sure. showing that, you know, you work for this particular, uh, you know, powerful thug um, that has right. a family crest that you paint on the shield. And you can point all those shields at the enemy and, you know, scare them when you go to battle. That's right. There we go. Here come the Gambinos, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, it, you know, once again, it, from from our standpoint of, of, a camera, uh, of a podcast about building cameras, you know, we can do one-offs and we can do series. Um, but... Uh, you know, they are going to have different visual impacts. One of the things um, about Dora Goodman is every Dora Goodman camera looks like a Dora Goodman camera, right? Um, she's got that down. I don't know. That new one kind of looks a lot like a Todd Schlemmer camera to me. It does. It does. It looks like a very smooth Schlemmer camera. I agree. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that's. Um, uh, that, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about 
um, uh, photography um, and that the the things that are interesting are are your projects, you know, the series that you're doing. And, um, you know, and I've been thinking a lot. We'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about a, a zine. Um, but like I have a zine uh, that I'm going to that I'm in the concept stage of doing with uh, with Kraken photos. Uh, it's called Double Wide. How about that? Yeah, you like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I like it's that. Kind of, yeah. So I need to have a double wide picture of a double wide. Yeah. Um, so um, the the um, uh, you know, so what do I put in there? It can't just be the camera. It has to have another philosophy behind it. You know, um, you know, I took these all with this camera using this film. Ah, how about you do something? visually conceptual with that um and so i don't know i've been thinking a lot about that um <clears throat> fighting myself back and forth with it yeah i think that uh i think you're onto something and it's it's something where you it's sort of the exception proving the rule kind of thing so if you have a consistent thing running through a series of designs that you're producing then every little change you make sort of stands out and has extra significance um, so there's a certain power in that, too. But I want to draw everyone's attention now to the opposite, which um, I was going to put in the shout outs, but I'm going to bump it up now, because if you look at the a recent post on the Homemade Camera Podcast Facebook group, there's this outlandish camera by Pete Punquette, which uh -huh. is this bricolage assembly of it looks like parts off Baroque, fake Baroque lamps and things like that, all these really ornate brass parts. Um, it's this wonderful kind of punk, steampunk, Baroque camera he's working on. And it's the exact opposite kind of thing. It's like the power you get from putting everything, in, including the kitchen sink, into something instead of uh, stripping it down to its essentials. Okay, so, sure. A lot, a lot of fun. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And you, and you pick up all those associations with other other ideas that way instead of, instead of the idea that, something is just one person's singular creation there's this other kind of borrow and steal and and merge things from all over the place to create um, a different kind of a different kind of statement all right um uh what do you guys say we start the homemade camera podcast let's do it yeah had sent me a text about this new Raspberry Pi camera um, and so I checked it out I had heard about it but kind of was on my back burner and I think it's a pretty interesting thing um, you know a lot of the internet is making it out like this will do everything that cameras should do which is not necessarily true but I think it's it's a new sensor that they sell with a C mount uh, which is like a you know, standard cinema and um, CCTV lens mount that you can get lenses for really cheaply. It's about 12 uh -huh. megapixels. It's still a rather small sensor, but compared to the, you know, micron size sensors from earlier Raspberry Pi cameras that were taken out of cell phones, um, it is 
pretty big. Um, uh-huh. I have some Raspberry Pi projects that have been backburnered for more than a year now. Um, so stereo cameras. I'm yeah, gonna go I'm gonna stop you right there. Uh, not everybody's real familiar with Raspberry Pi. Um, can you go over really quickly what it is and what it isn't, and how is it different from Arduino? Sure. Um, so a Raspberry Pi is, um, well, there's a series of Raspberry Pis. Um, I think they're on the Pi 4 now. I have a bunch of Pi 3B pluses, whatever. Um, they are small Linux machines, uh, entire computers on one board, right? So it's got the processor, the RAM, uh, the drive, everything everything you need for a whole computer. And, and I have a bunch of these either running small print servers or... I use a couple of small pocket ones that look like USB hubs as actually, you know, uh, programming beds for uh, Linux stuff. They're great for embedded systems. Um, they're also very, very cheap, right? So you can buy a Pi Zero for five bucks and you can buy a Pi Zero W with Wi-Fi for 10 bucks. And um, you can buy like a, you know, I haven't looked at the four price, but you can buy a 3B plus or something like that for, I don't know, 30, 35 bucks shipped. You can run Linux on them. They're basically, you know, full computers. Um, they differ from Arduinos in that Arduinos tend to be, um, you know, single-threaded processors. Although they have some, you know, uh, dual-core Arduinos, and there's other ways to, you know, uh, hook them in series and parallel and get them to talk to each other to do things at once. But, you know, a, a microcontroller like an Arduino, you generally don't, and there's exceptions to all of this, but you generally don't run an operating system on it, right? So okay. I write the operating system for the Arduino, and then it does. So it's all it's all firmware? Yeah, right. So the programs I write for Arduinos are primarily firmware. Um, okay. and, and basically, they're if-then machines, right? So they have the ability to read a sensor and then trigger something. And, you know, you can also read the internet or read some database with them. But but pretty much it's, a, it's an if-then machine, right? If five okay. cans pass the laser, uh, trigger the relay, which actuates the, the arm that pushes the cans under the filler type of thing like oh, that. Um, okay. The, Raspberry Pis will run an operating system on which you can run a program. So, like, my 3D camera um, runs uh, Raspbian build of Linux, and then on it, it's actually, like, uh, we're, we're getting into the weeds here, but it's, it's yeah. running uh, something called a cron job, which is, like, a timed executor of different programs. And then, like, the camera program is actually not one program, but it's, five or six different programs that I ran with a cron job handler. So, you know, when <clears throat> like there's, there's a program that like reads a button and then fires a photo. And then there's another cron job that sees the photo in one folder and then go gets the other photos from the other pies and agglomerates them. And then there's another one that sees that happen and then runs a different program that I wrote that like, combines them into some 3D images. Anyway, um, it's much more like a regular computer, uh, but it has the option of, you know, um, interfacing either directly with a Arduino or directly with some sensors through its pinouts. Uh, it's got a, you know, series of pins where it can sense and control voltages. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is a excellent computer just for using as a computer, uh, but it's also a really uh-huh. great computer for, running a webcam, running a CCTV cam, um, 
running regular cameras. So it's a, scanners, so it's a more evolved organism. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so the Raspberry Pi 4 gigabyte uh, model 4B is 55 bucks. So I don't know if that what that is uh, compared to what you were thinking, but that's what I just found on PieShopUS.us. Yep. Um, so basically, and what you're saying is that this their Raspberry Pi provides all the equipment you need to make yourself a little digital camera. Um, well, the Pi is the computer that you would then hook the camera to, and I think this new camera is something like probably 50 bucks in release, but if you want it now, maybe 100 bucks on eBay. So they sell a pre-made camera, essentially, that, that talks to the Raspberry Pi. Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's got its own sort of, um, what is it, CDMI port. Uh, it's It's like a little... I forget the name of the, the actual port, but it's it's this little zip connector um, that goes between the camera and the Pi. It's set up um, like that. And most of the okay. firmware or operating system builds have, um, you know, built-in software to talk to the, the Pi. So there's a lens and a sensor. Are they really small and close together, like teeny tiny? Um, yeah, so that's kind of the improvement of this above all else is traditionally you got like basically a cell phone lens and a sensor together. Although Sony made some eight megapixel, um, small sensor that you could mount different specialty lenses on. But, um, this one, when you buy the unit, you're actually just buying a lens mount with a chip behind it. And then mm -hmm. you can mount any C mount lens to it, or, you know, with a little tinkering, just about any lens to it. So um, what's that focal length C mount? Uh, flange back kind of size a few millimeters or? yeah 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 very yeah. small right uh, we're talking like cctv lens type of mm -hmm. lens. Mm -hmm. seven 17.5 millimeters is a c-mount uh flange distance oh, that's actually a little bit longer than i thought it would have been but uh -huh. i guess yeah, you need some space for threads right right so uh, okay so um what what do you see as the possibilities for this thing, uh, Ethan? What do you what's the for for home home builders? I mean, the world is your oyster. I don't want to give away too much about you know what what I am going to do with it, but I think it's uh, certainly sure. applicable for one webcams in this day and age of you know I bought this um, Sony A fifty one hundred on YouTube on YouTube on eBay for YouTube uh -huh. uh, for something like. Two hundred dollars, one hundred ninety bucks with a lens. They're now going for like five hundred bucks. It's you know, coronavirus is the only time in history where digital camera prices on vintage cameras have increased. Um, yeah, and it's you know, there's some supply issues, which I'm sure there will be with the Raspberry Pi. But I think you could build some pretty reasonable webcam or direct streaming uh, cameras this way. In fact, like you know, if you had the bandwidth you wouldn't even have to run it through your computer. You could run it through a Pi that directly streams to the net. Um, you know, I think the very obvious thing in 3D printing is people will make some really beautiful time-lapse videos of their 3D prints, which is, you know, a built-in feature on um, Octoprint or Octopi, which is, you know, an operating system that runs a little server for 3D printers, and that's become, like, a genre of videos on the Internet. Um, 
but you know, I think you could do some more sophisticated stuff. Eventually I may wind up replacing some of the cameras in my, uh, 3d camera if I ever get back to that. But you know, I've got more important things to do at this moment. Um, I don't know. I, I could see them. It's not quite high res enough yet or high bit depth enough that I would want to use it in a scanner. Um, but that's been something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, Sounds like it might really work for the idea I had of a uh, hybrid twin lens camera where you could have a digital viewfinder and a f and shoot film in the in the, with the taking lens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you just were using it as a viewfinder, I would say this thing is overkill in terms of expense and then how much juice it's going to pull out of your batteries. Actually, what finally was the the reason why I shelved my 3D camera project was uh, not a programming problem, but in fact, a battery consumption problem. Um, they, you know, even the old cameras, um, I was drawing about half an amp keeping the cameras fired up so that I would have no shutter lag um, per camera, right? And so I was running four of them, which meant uh, I was pulling two amps out of uh, lithium-ion batteries, which, you know, it, it just, the camera did not last long before the batteries died. It really needed to be hooked to something, which was annoying, or have a battery pack. And I assume, I have not actually looked to the power consumption specs, but I assume that bigger sensor uh and more dense sensor means that uh, this thing's going to eat power, particularly under video mode. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe Elon Musk will invent some new batteries. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I, I think, though, right. Nick, you're you're on the right track. I would just use a worse camera for that, unless you wanted to do capture as well. Um, basically, you know, kind of like if we had webcams going right now, it would step on our bandwidth for talking in the podcast. Um, if we had 6K webcams, it would step on our bandwidth that much more. Yeah, uh -huh. I guess I'm thinking of it more as for, you know, an intermittent use device. The, the idea was that, so I love a mechanical twin lens reflex cameras, but in low light, you can't see what you're doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. the kind of situation where a camera like that could be, it might be kind of a specialist thing, but it could be very cool. Yeah, I don't. I didn't actually look to see what their low light performance was, but I assume way better than the human eye, just by virtue of it is a camera released post 2015. You know. <laughs> yeah, and when you when you put a, a human eye, you know, peering down at a, at a mirror in an old <laughs> an old TLR, it yeah, yeah. It, you run out of light. Okay, so um. Uh, I've been thinking about this as a TLR kind of deal. Wouldn't you then need the film or the taking sensor, whatever you're going to do on the taking side, to be the same size image and the same focal length, flange focal distance as the uh, as the uh, uh, viewing? Well, I mean, I mean, you could do it. You could do it a number of ways, right? You could try and optimize them so they're equal. You could use some software that converts, or you could just do it in the same way that I'm back does it, where they can't get sensors the same size as the film they're reproducing. So they use a focusing screen, right? And then they just point a camera at the focusing screen. Yeah, that's a simple oh, okay. Way to do it. That's yeah. a simple way to do it. But you could also use um, there, there's there's ways you can cheat. Uh, 
you'd have to figure that out. But there's a bunch of ways you could cheat. Yeah. I mean, where I see this most uh, applicable right now is actually not a groundbreaking thing, right? For, uh, I mean, we already have OpenCV, which is uh, Open Computer Vision is a Python library that you can access really easily. Um, and it's free and does a lot of, um, you know, uh, recognition and detection if you're doing things like point matching and uh, 3D modeling with cameras, right? And that that's kind of the amazing thing. And cameras will get better and better, um, as will the OpenCV modules. So, you know, computer vision is, is excellent for robotics and self-driving cars and things like that. In terms of this camera, I just see it as like, one closer step to being uh -huh. able to build your own SLR, but not quite there. Um, one of the issues I had with the older Raspberry Pis, and I assume this is um, kind of one of one of the main issues, is that there is some lag to reading these cameras. And now, now I'm going to go into the technical weeds, which is that when you read a frame from a digital camera, you're actually reading line by line in a, a series of vectors or, or a matrix. Right. Right. And so if you were to push a shutter button and read the, the camera, it, it has some real lag. And so yeah. what I did to get rid of that was I actually had them stream video every time the camera was off. So I had four lines of video going 24 seven and and then, you know, when I pressed the shutter button, I just started capturing at that point, um, which reduced the lag, but it also just made it incredibly, um, just like the, the chips got hot, the, yeah. the batteries got drained. Um, mm -hmm. And and I, by 24-7, by 24-7, you meant 24 minutes, 24 minutes and seven seconds worth of battery, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, I had something <laughs> like seven minutes. Yeah. Uh, oh. When I when yeah. I ran all of them, but you know I only had two eighteen six fifties, which yeah I I could have had a six eighteen six fifty pack on there, but you know it it yeah it, uh, ugh, it was a painful thing. I'll get back to it one day, one of these days. Anyway, I I assume that this new camera will suffer from the same sort of shutter lag issues and or um, you know heavy power consumption if you run it as video all the time and then you know just capture one frame and bleed out the other frames to the ether um but i you know i think in terms of programming and um like the the raspi cam is some of the the inbuilt software um i think a lot of the camera control stuff will get better as people have better things to program for. They write better programs as there's better programs. There's more adoption and more impetus to build more hardware. And I just, I kind of see it as a step and I would not be surprised if one day, not soon, but one day we could buy like a full frame sensor that is controlled by a Raspberry Pi that has very little shutter. You know, I think the Raspberry Pi cameras will get, will have the same evolution that we had in digital cameras, right? We're seeing it. One is like a really mm -hmm. terrible, tiny little digital camera and then like you know they start solving uh resolution then they start solving bit depth then they start solving shutter lag then they start solving power consumption unless you have a fuji or a sony um yeah but you know i i could see like i just made a rostrum setup so i could film my hands to make like mechanical pencil review video 
as in hopefully some camera assembly videos. Um, but you know, I have to like set the damn camera up. I could see just screwing one of those $50 cameras to my ceiling and leaving it there. Uh, that seems reasonable to do. Yeah. That seems like the most useful thing about these is that you can insert them into other structures fairly simply. And here, here's a side question that, that comes to mind. It seems like you could maybe figure out a way to drive a really simple rangefinder focusing mechanism with one of these Arduino or Raspberry Pi controllers, um, absolutely, and, and some sort of a laser, you know, measurement device. Um, well, so I mean, there's a couple of different ways you could do it. The issue is they're still relatively small sensors, which means they still have relatively small depths of field, right? You can't buy that bright a lens, and so just Focusing through one lens is not going to be super helpful. However, with OpenCV and point matching, you could pretty easily use two cameras and choose a point. It could figure out the offset and then figure out um, how far away something is and then drive a stepper motor controller and then a stepper motor that then turns um, any sort of lens to the appropriate distance. But there are simpler ways of doing that, um, you know, like a $2 sonar, sonar module on an Arduino. Um, we've been using some of those in the ventilator project, actually, for um, using Doppler effect to measure flow rates and gases. But it, they're very ubiquitous and, and cheap. Um, I don't like pointing lasers at people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that's yeah, that's sure. Another option. So a sonar module, fine. The, the the idea is kind of fun, though. I'm I'm, I'm picturing this, you know, eight by ten autofocus. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> it would be fun. So then you'd have to have a way to direct the sonar at the uh, at the subject, or you know, it's like to if you're going to pick one thing out of the frame to focus on. Yeah, I mean, so. I think you could build an autofocus. So there's a couple of things. My my dad is also a you know a dropout electrical engineer like me, um, and was a photographer back in the day. And there's a couple of inventions that all my life he claimed to have invented, like in his head, never got around to it or bought the parts, and you know never actually built. And somebody else made them. And I've always been like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dad. Until in like 2000. One, he told me the idea for Facebook. I laughed at him, told him it was a stupid idea. Don't do it. Nobody's ever <laughs> that. And he was thinking of it more like LinkedIn um, because uh, they blew up the World Trade Center and he didn't have a job for a while. Uh, and he was looking for a job and he was like, well, I want to talk to this guy. And so maybe this guy and I have a friend in common. They can put us in touch. He was like, that is the stupidest idea. Don't do that. You know, and then like what, a year or two on, later. What you're talking about second. here is Robo Yenta. I mean, of course he is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, 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 Ethan, you're a Winklevoss? No, no, no. I mean, it, it, it's like it's it's not like somebody stole Mike Moses's right. idea. He just had it, and it was the first time that I I saw him have an idea that was a world changer. That I said, no, this will never happen, and and he agreed with me and and forgot about it. Anyway, um, you bastard. <laughs> One of the things that he told me that he invented in the 70s was uh, autofocus cameras, which is basically just two two little light meters, right? Two LDRs uh, that measure contrast and compare, rack mm -hmm. back and forth 
mm-hmm. then measure the contrast along the range, and then move to the part of the range that has the most contrast, which has a lot to do with the super secret project that I am building now, which is not an autofocus mechanism, but does do some edge detection um, in a semi-analog circuit. And I think, you know, forgetting about Raspberry Pi and using computer vision to detect uh, distances and then running servo motors, yada, yada, you could just as easily like, do you remember those Sinar and Braun color probes for 8x10 and 4x5 cameras for spot metering on the film plane? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could have something like that where you put a wand around the film plane um, that has some, you know, a, a very rudimentary autofocus, but like a dual spot LDR, and then, you know, rack the lens back and forth with the motor, measure some contrast, find the the number of steps to the most high contrast area and then rack the lens again. And I think that would work pretty well. Um, you know, I, in terms of a product, I don't know how many people want to autofocus eight by 10, but uh, <laughs> maybe I'll get there. I, I have built uh, a quarter of this machine already in the machine that I'm working on. Yeah. Well, I, you are working on a handheld eight by 10, so it's not that far fetched. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's no more, let's put it this way. It's no more far fetched. Yeah. So, Ethan, what else has been up? What else have you been working on? Um, I don't know. I think you guys are tired of hearing about ventilators. Um, I've been working on a super secret project, which I will stop talking about now. And also, I've gotten kind of down this wormhole of a mechanical pencils. I bought a lot of them. The cool thing is, is like for $35, I can buy every single mechanical pencil that I'm interested in uh, and try them all out (laughs) and then give some away. Um, I found one that I really loved. I bought one for Joe Van Cleve. Uh, Okay, so what is it? What part of the mechanical pencil uh, is it that I can buy um, that is unsatisfactory to you? Oh, well, do you want to go down this wormhole, Graham? Do sure. you really want to? Okay. Well, so, actually, okay. so actually, yeah, I could use better ones because I use them in the field uh, to take notes in, in, while skiing, and they just break too easily. Yep, yep, okay, okay. This is this is the point at the podcast where we're going to look back and realize that all of our listeners left us. Um, okay. So <laughs> there, um, I'll, I'll tell you how I how I got into it is, um, traditionally I write in pen. I keep a notebook in my pocket all the time. Uh, we were all talking about book binding for about half an hour before we started the podcast, which yes. I think we can spare our listeners for, t- for now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, I have, uh, I had bought actually with Joe, um, like a pack of 10, uh, big 0.5 millimeter mechanical pencils just to, you know, throw in a drawer. And I drew some, drawings of this uh, new machine that I was working on in pencil because it was rather complex and I needed to do some erasing. And I thought, Oh man, like why, why haven't I been drawing in pencil? Uh, but I only owned, you know, these 10 disposable big pencils and they were pretty bad and snapped the tips. And so I thought like, okay, time to do a deep dive on this. Joe has a very expensive, uh, Rotring, uh, 600, which is like a, fancy mechanical pencil all brass it's maybe i don't know i i actually bought one on sale on amazon for 18 dollars shipped which is my most expensive writing implement uh it's like very decadent and crazy but uh i think joe's must have cost like 
30 bucks or 40 bucks. Anyway, um, so I bought one of those and a bunch of other highly reviewed pencils. And, and actually, like, I just bought them because I needed to do some drawing. And I, I, I draw every day, right? I draw a lot of gears and levers and cams and things. And being able to erase is nice. And also having, like, a very fine line that I can ink over is nice. And for the last two months working on the ventilator project, I think I've mentioned this, I am the only... Um, native English speaker on the team, which means, you know, just in group engineering, which I usually don't do, or uh, group engineering with uh, Spanish and Portuguese speakers, and my Spanish and Portuguese is terrible, uh, let alone, you know, the people who speak Hindi or Dutch, uh, which I speak none of. Um, and so I, I've just been doing a ton of mechanical and system and flowchart drawing for a while. And anyway, I got into this uh, pencil thing. And then I got into being interested in like the inner mechanics of a mechanical pencil. So there's actually a lot of very different style mechanisms in ball or in pencils versus like a ballpoint pen, which are almost all, you know, variations on the same thing. Although I have been looking for some promotional pen from the nineties, that's worth 35 cents that, uh, that, uh, has a unique mechanism. It looks to me like Nick is pointing his pencil at me very suggestively. Right. What um, what is Nick? So that's a Mars Statler Technico. Yeah. It's my favorite. Oh, yeah. It's a German-made it's, pencil. It's beautiful. I and have one, one of those. And it's like a lead holder, right? It's a lead holder, and it has um, it has like a ch almost like a drill chuck with three yep. three yep. parts that expand based on the the inclined plane or wedge principle so it's very strong and simple it's made of metal uh, with a plastic body and and the, yeah. the other part of it is that it has a big heavy duty lead that doesn't break off but which you can actually put a point on with an emery board if you want to so it's a it's a real more of an artist tool than a mechanical drawing tool but it's no it, it is a mechanical drawing tool. well i know it is but the line is so thick <laughs> no but i mean do you know about this lead pointer nick uh like a rotary lead pointer yeah, yeah I, I used to have a, one that was for wooden pencils that was uh -huh. powered i've never had one for for this but i just uh -oh. use it. i just use a little emery border piece of sandpaper yeah it. no i mean i have a uh, so i had the exact same pencil in high school in mechanical drafting class um and you, there's a specific tool. It's a, a rotary lead pointer. Statler makes them. Mm -hmm. Everybody cool. makes them. And you can put any type of tip you want on that thing. Uh, we did not actually use mechanical pe pencils. We just used, um, you know, drop clutch lead holders like that Statler. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, a lead pointer is, is great. So what, what I found out is, one, um, you know, on a big mechanical pencil, the tip is plastic. Uh, and it's short. It's basically for writing, right? But for an actual drafting pencil, I have never really owned one of these. They make these four millimeter, like syringe, like needle tips. So you can draw along the side of a ruler, really right. see what you're doing, have super pre precise control as well. You can push really hard on some very, very fine lead to get a very tiny line. That's also dark. And so, um, I've been a real fan of those the pentel graph gear 500 is my current favorite um you can't put it in your pocket because the needle tip doesn't retract but i made some um caps for them for one day when i can actually leave my house and all my pens don't sit at my desk um 
and then I, I got to buy in all sorts of grades of lead and sizes of lead. Um, and then I found like, um, have, have you guys heard of the Unikuratoga? Uh-uh. Turn point in Japanese. Uh, Uniball makes this um, pencil. It's kind of a gimmick, but it actually works really amazingly. I don't like it for drawing, but I've started writing with it a lot. So it has a couple of features. One is a ret- retractable tip, so you can put it in your pocket, uh, which makes it a much more like writing-friendly pencil. The other thing is uh, it has a sliding sleeve. So the <laughs> sleeve slides back, or the, the little needle tip slides back as you write with it. So you can actually write for a while without having to expose so much lead that you would crack it off. I've never cracked any lead in this pencil, and I push really hard. Um, uh, so, you okay, know, so do you have the do you have the Spirited Away version or My Neighbor or Kiki's <laughs> Delivery? No, These are I, the names of those different Unicuritoga pencils. Yeah, yeah, they make a lot of versions. I bought the cheapest on Amazon, which was a black 0.5 Unicuritoga Advance. The Advance is the one with the sliding sleeve, and Kuritoga means uh, turning point, which is you know, kind of a gimmicky thing, and I like it for writing. So what it does is every time you push on the pencil tip, it actually rotates the lead um, something like 30 degrees or 20 degrees, something like that, um, which keeps the pencil tip sharp. And you're always- oh, yeah. Okay, okay, I have to break in. I had a drafting teacher who taught uh, not not mechanical drafting, but, you know, hand drawing. Yep. And he had a student that blew his mind because she had perfected the technique of doing that manually so she could draw uh-huh. for an hour with a pencil and it stayed sharp the whole time. <laughs> she did this yeah, little, little, yeah. little revolving in her hand thing. And yeah. I, I was taught that in drawing class that that as you draw, you just kind of roll it on your. Yeah, uh, I could I could do that. I just couldn't make anything that looked like what I wanted it to with that <laughs> right you know. well so i mean the, <laughs> the issue is so i do roll my pencils to keep them sharp but even better is just getting a 0.3 lead with a needle tip and it's always sharp it's just uh-huh. it's tiny right and they make them even down to 0.2 but it's hard to get lead so i didn't buy one of those but this kurutoga it rotates the lead for you which is amazing and it's great if you're going to write a page you know you just click it out once and it stays sharp, and then the tip just retracts as you write, and you don't have to keep clicking every couple of sentences. Um, But the issue with it is the tip is, like, mushy and wiggles a little bit because of the mechanism, and so I never really want to do any drafting with it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's fine for imprecise, you know, writing my thoughts imprecisely in a book, but um, really, like, the the standard sort of needle tip... um, you know, metal end pencil that's like a syringe is, you know, it was invented, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, and it it works really well. You can, I mean, my drawing is, I'm not, I'm not a great drawer, but uh, it's gotten much nicer and cleaner. And I've been digging that, and I've been trying to um, uh, 3D print some pencil extenders or uh, lead holders, like drop clutch lead holders, which you know, again, the CAD models work in actuality in plastic. They all fall apart. I've had some just disasters that I have designed while waiting on other prints for other projects. But, um, you know, I don't think it's a market that I'm going to go into is pens and pencils in that for $5, you can buy a perfect mechanical pencil on Amazon of any sort of sort. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, I, I follow you, but I also follow the
role of making, you know, the the bespoke. Uh, I mean, I can't help myself. Pencil. I'm going to do it, right? But I, right. I'm just trying to talk myself out of it because I got better things to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's there's six broken 3D printed lead it. holders on my desk. You can do it, man. Do it. Yeah. Yeah, do yeah. it. I will. I will. Can't help myself. Um, yeah, that's. I, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of uh, learning to draw is helpful. Um, for huh. photography and seeing, right? Not that that's the type of drawing I'm doing. Um, but, yeah, you know, uh, pencils are the original graphy. Right. Right. Yeah, I, that... I'm, and I'm thinking more and more about do, doing handwork on photos as a place I want to go, um, whether it's with color or, or drawing. I've seen some beautiful uh, work. Um, I'm trying to... So... People used to retouch photos by drawing with lead right on the film. And there was a pencil device. I don't know. Did we already talk about this? Which was basically a vibrating pencil that you could move around to create. It's essentially like dodging and burning, but you skip the darkroom part. You just pencil in right on on the photo. And these vibrating pencils helped make kind of an even even texture as you worked. Um, It's also similar to airbrushing. and this was a thing that was a, a normal way to to work um, back in the day. Yeah, in fact, um, I've been going down a bunch of subreddit wormholes, and I saw a post by a guy who was still using mechanical pencils, uh, penciling in, you know, dodging spots on his negatives. There you go. I don't think I'm going to go that far, right? I'm just going to draw some more cameras. In fact, I, I think... Um, you know, like my friend Joe has all these cameras. I love his cameras, but I think even more, I love his sketchbooks that lead up to any one camera and photos of that camera and with it. So I don't have any desire to draw with a pencil on a little piece of film, but I am building big cameras and I expect to do a lot of work with paper negatives and maybe eventually make my own paper negatives by coating a really good quality paper with emulsion and drawing on those before scanning them makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. <laughs> it seems so hard. Oh, no. No, no. Not if you're used to drawing from scratch. I mean, hey, now you've got all this already pre-done stuff to work with. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I'm making incremental progress on several projects at once. Um, but I, before I get to that, I wanted to just mention that I've been shooting a little bit with a, a Kraken that Graham sent to me. And I had the first one with a 135 millimeter nose on it. And I shot a roll. And it was fine, but I started wanting something a little wider. And uh, I decided it would be nice to shoot with a 127 millimeter lens that I have because um, it has the right coverage. and it's small and light and a, l- a little shorter and a little wider, but not too wide. You know, I still want to get in. I want to push myself to shoot wide format w- with a little bit of a more of a normal close up, closer lens. So uh, we did a lot of back and forth on uh, exactly figuring out the exact right custom length for this nose cone. And that took some time, but I wanted to use it with a 
a lens board that screws into the front of an M65 helical because it's super convenient and it makes it easy for me to use this lens on a different camera, which I want to be able to swap back and forth. Um, and so we, we figured all that out with a lot of care and testing using, uh, I put the lens on a bellows camera so I could get it precise measurements and so forth. Um, and when this cone arrived, I, I just put it on the camera, put everything together, pointed it at a distant object and bam, it was perfect. Infinity focus right on with the mm -hmm. helical all the way retracted and it couldn't be better. So that's the first time in my, all my camera building that that's ever happened. So it was really a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the interesting thing about your, your design. This is, this is sort of the ultimate in iteration where you make the same camera, but it, covers quite a huge range of lenses and right and that it works maybe a little more easily with a big piece of film like that um but it's uh it's a it's a it's a really good idea and it makes a lot of sense um because it's very specific in other respects so nothing else changes about this camera it's the same film transport same format but you are now changing the formats as well right um, but that means different nose cones again. So it's easier to think of them right. as as one series, you know. And it's, I, it's kind of I, the Russian yeah. doll thing we talked about a long time ago. Like, you know, the littler, you could line them all. Eventually, you should have a huge line of these going, you know, down the length of a bowling alley and get a shot of them all together. <laughs> uh, part of the deal is, uh, just to let people know, um, I am uh, expanding the Kraken line, uh, or at least the, for myself, um, you know, 645, 6x6, 6x9, 6x12 is already out. I'm working on a 6x17. If I can um, convince Ethan to uh, to print that. Oh, yeah. Sorry. We, um, we have not talked about that, but we need to. Maybe after yeah, the yeah. 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 And, um, but one of the things that I did for the six by 12 was essentially I made a nose cone and this is all digitally. I didn't actually make any of these nose cones, but, um, I made the files for the nose cone in one millimeter increments from, uh, essentially a, uh, a, a very slow, or excuse me, a very sh uh, wide, wide lens. I believe it's the 58 millimeter all the way up to 180s, uh, to 180 millimeter lenses. Um, and, uh, part of the deal was I wasn't able to get the data on the flange focal distance for every camera. Uh, we got a bunch of, contradictory flange focal distances so i didn't want to you know make one based on what i read and then have somebody say well this is too long and you need to make a shorter one so i just went ahead and made all the shorter ones but the um uh, uh so i will not be probably doing that with any of the other ones i'll just make real common common lens um uh cones and then uh if somebody wants another cone i'll i'll make the cone at that point because it was it it was several days to do that and um uh, and what i'm seeing is people are using 
uh, Schneider super angulons and angulons and uh, right. very yeah. few other other ones. So so that's uh, part of it, part of the deal and a couple of Optars. But um, but that's uh, I, I overbuilt uh, on that. So um, so I probably won't be doing that in, in the future. But, you know, this this goes to a little bit of what we were talking about before with design um you know it uses the same knobs it uses the same uh door closing system it uses the same advanced system and um and i don't have to redesign that every time so there's an economy uh like a car manufacturer does not put a different windshield wiper motor in every vehicle it's the same windshield wiper motor that they in, put in, in every fact, vehicle. Yeah. Uh, the windshield wiper motor in my ventilator uh was made for the volkswagen beetle in 1955 and they <laughs> uh-huh. still use it in the jetta up until 2016 yeah <laughs> yeah okay yeah so that's a perfect example of what this is so it's expanding on a concept and i have a couple of other concepts on which uh, which I'm going to expand um, that Cassie on. Um, so um, so yeah so uh, so there are so there are some other ones coming. But um, uh, I'm uh, I'm glad you're you're finding it effective, um, uh, Nick. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a really nice camera. I I particularly like the wide 612, not just because it's an unusual format. But because there's lots of room, you know, for my rangefinder and viewfinder and all that on the top of it. And it just it's a nice proportion to handle. Uh-huh. And um, I'll I'll talk up um, uh, Raveni Labs uh, light meter. I got mine. Um, I was one of the backers on Kickstarter and I got mine in, in an early batch. And that is. um very it, it you know it's barely wider than the foot of a uh, of a cold shoe foot and it it fits um uh, excuse me it fits very well with a bunch of other uh items in on the shoes so um yeah i think that that's that, that is something that's really nice so that, yeah that is uh, good. good job uh matt beckberger on that so um, okay, so that's that's my uh, excitement about getting the cracking going with a new lens. The other thing I've been tinkering with is the universal speed graphics. So this is the camera that will provide a shutter and two by three graph lock back for any, pretty much any medium format and even some 35 millimeter or you know any longer uh, flange back lenses can be mounted just by changing the the depth of the front with a different bayonet mount on it. So this camera I'm pretty excited about, and I got it completely disassembled with the, which you can do with just a few a very you know small flathead screwdrivers. Um, the thing is basically made using miniaturized carpentry for the most part. And, uh, but I got to, it, I was planning to just saw it off just ahead of the, the shutter to get like the minimum flange back distance possible. Unfortunately, there's this really handy uh, shutter activation button on one of the sides. And so now I'm sort of rethinking the design. I'd like to keep the full depth of the box on just the one side and then create a mount for the uh, different fronts that is a little bit closer back in. Um, 
so that I can use a few lenses, uh, really, you know, get infinity focus with something like an M42 mount lens, which would be a lot of fun to be able to do. So uh, I'm fooling around with that, how to make a bracket that fits. And I'm thinking about being able to use sheet metal uh, lens boards for those real close lenses to get them in there as close as possible without, you know, actually shoving it into the into the shutter. So that's in in a midway stage. And then I'm also getting really close to building a couple of different backs, uh, rear standard boxes for this eight by 10 sort of semi field, semi studio camera that I'm building out of uh, mostly parts from old Cambo camera, but with the, the rear standard being homemade, the part that takes the film holder being homemade. Um, and that is bringing me to realize that there are different versions of this that I want to make. So one version has, you know, this big rail front that allows. Wait, 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 hold, yep. hold on. Yep. Different versions. Nick, you build universal cameras. How well, can so, you have different versions? It's universal. Well, no, that's how, that's <laughs> how you, that's the point of a universal camera is it, it transforms. And this one <laughs> One one version of it uses this long rail and gives you full movements. But the lens that I'm going to start using, a 250 millimeter um, a Fujinon, which is very small, compact lens that just covers 8 by 10 there's no point in using movements with that. So now I'm thinking about building an even simpler version of this that's just a back with a fairly short throw focus um, and I can just modify an old bag bellows that fits that uh, the same front and the same uh, uh, lens boards so that it will be much more compact. And all I'm doing is focusing from reasonably close to infinity. It doesn't need a huge amount of throw um, to make a, like a real super portable 8x10, which I think would be a lot of fun. Um, so that's a simplified version that I want to make that's just for this lens. And that brought me to think about this whole thing. I'm moving more and more towards really centering cameras choice and camera design around lenses in, instead of around cameras, because there's a tendency we've gotten so far into systems in, you know, the way that cameras are marketed. So basically I'm swinging more in a, in a uh, Ethan Moses direction with, Built, building or choosing a camera to be the perfect companion for a specific lens instead of trying to make a camera that takes every lens in the world. Um, and I guess part of that is just when you have too many cameras, you start to realize that you only ever want to use one lens on a particular body. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and more and more that's how I'm, I'm addressing design is start with the lens and then uh, and make the perfect body for it instead of the other way around. Is that uh, lens that you're talking about? That that's a barrel lens. That's not uh, doesn't have a shutter. Am I right? No, 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 no. It's 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 an Ecopal shutter. It's a really it's oh, okay. the it's the cheapest lens you can find that fully covers eight by ten. That's a high quality lens and has a shutter. Um, there you can typically find them for around two hundred dollars. It's a beautiful <laughs> lens. It's pretty much my favorite range of focal length. It's you know, if, if there's such a thing as equivalence, the field of view is similar to a 35 millimeter lens on a regular 35 millimeter camera. And that's nice because it's wide enough to do, you know, environmental things, but you don't push the background out of sight into the distance. So it's a, it's just a real handy focal length. Um, it doesn't 
give room for movements on eight by ten. But then if you just crop a little, yeah, there's you can do all that stuff too. And um, okay. So I'm mostly heading towards using paper negatives just for cost and also for I'm starting mm -hmm. to really like them. There's so much you can do to mess around. It's you paper negatives basically open up making your own film, um, you know, to all kinds of alternative processes. And there's just so much mm -hmm. fun you can do. And then when you start getting a little bit funky there, it's nice to have that big piece of paper so that you can still keep a sense of, you know, fairly good resolution and detail as well. Um, so that's kind of what this is about. It's it's a camera to push me into more alternative processes and uh, more kind of a do it yourself at that end of it. Because I've tended to shoot with a million different cameras, but then my processing has been this scan the film and it all happens in the computer. And that's a lot of fun and I like it. But I want to start making more uh, you know, alternative direct where you're working directly with the, the emulsion and the film and all that part of it. And in spring, what, what happens? A, uh, a a boy's fancy turns towards the homemade camera zine. Yes, uh, issue number two, volume number two of the homemade camera zine will be out at the end of the summer. So that means that we are going to start asking for submissions. Now, we are not going to have an upload on our website and a form and all that stuff. Uh, well, we will probably have a form, but we will not have the upload on the website. We are going to have an email address that we're going to send. They're going to have you send uh, the information to. Um, so um, uh, there was a big problem. Uh, we lost the website for a while because of unscrupulous camera builders who decided to take down our website or just general hackers who took down our website. So we're going to have you send it to an email address and I'll have all that information in future episodes when everything is properly set up. We are aiming for an August 1st or actually let's do July 31st deadline. I just took 24 hours away from you. Um, July 21st or July 31st deadline, and we will be doing um, uh, that. Uh, uh, we'll be putting it together in August for uh, an end of August release. Um, we're looking into printing on demand. That is the ideal way that we want that to happen. Um, so that means that you will go to a vendor, you'll put in your information, you'll buy it, you'll uh, you'll get it sent to you with alacrity as opposed and that to vendor won't be camera dactyl <laughs> best part. That's right. Oh, wait, no, hold on. I just saw an ad for camera dactyl print on demand services. So get a a free pencil and a free hand hand bomb uh, book. Oh, the last time was a giant money and loser, and time suck. <laughs> and a ventilator, and um, what else can you get? Uh, you can get uh, a uh, either a Ford Econoline van 
or a um, uh, Volkswagen Cabriolet as a bonus. One of those things um, you'll get with a bonus from the Maybe just send out a disposable camera and people can make their own zine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way it's going to be done. Yeah. Uh, no, we're going to we want to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put it this way. Really, uh, there have been a lot of things that we've done um, on the Homemade Camera podcast. And I really have to say that I think that the zine was my favorite thing uh, just with the craziness and the coolness and um, the stuff that was in there um, there. Yeah, that was, you know, that that was actually one of uh, one of my favorite things that we've ever done. I got, and I gotta say my, it was also one of my favorite things, even though I had nothing to do with it other than shipping. And like we met so many people from that zine and we've interviewed a lot of those people and they've made other things and told us about it it's it's great i love it yeah yeah absolutely so so that is something um that is uh that, that's coming along and so you know it's time to do a bit of planning and that planning um is really about um doing a couple of things we want pictures taken by the camera and pictures of the camera. And if it is not yet built, we want pictures of the build. Um, Wait, those can, are I, can I ask for one more thing, Graham? Yes. I would love to see sketches of the camera uh, before it's made or after it's made. But I'd, I'd love to see like sort of the, the drawing and design process. That's something I'm pretty big into these days. Okay, and what kind of pencils do they have to use for that? Uh, if you use a number two pencil or our Scantron cannot read it, you will be disqualified. <laughs> okay, and it has to be done in a blue no, book. You did you guys, did you guys have blue books in college? Yeah. Uh, when, when, yeah, okay. So you had to, what, yeah. There was something, so there was something had, else that came later? I, uh, <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I I, I'm lucky. I'm very, very lucky in that all the subjects that I teach are not blue book um, subjects that, yeah, uh, I would. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that is um, uh, that's coming up. Get excited. God, get excited because that's the coolest thing. That's the biggest legacy. That's the as I said, the proudest that I ever am is I'm when excited. I look through that thing. So. Woo! Yeah. So, um, Ethan, are you going to have anything to put in it? Um, yeah, I think this year I have the Bronco pan. I have some pinhole stuff. Uh, I, oh, I have uh, some laser cut stuff that's not a product yet that was supposed to be a product months and months ago. But uh, I don't really have access to the laser cutter. So everything that I was going to launch the first half of this year is not launched. But I, I might put some of that stuff in the zine. Uh, you could get a jigsaw. Won't that work? Yeah, but I would have to charge $8 million for a ca- oh. <laughs> camera cut with a jigsaw. Oh, I might okay. just buy a giant laser cutter, but I don't. Uh, it would take up half my shop, but it might come to that. And or then you have to feed the giant, and, and yeah. giants eat a lot, so uh, so there's that. Okay. I think you so, need to start tunneling, Ethan. You need uh, lower levels to just go down into the earth. Oh, no, yeah. no, if I if I actually if I owned the property, I would just buy a bunch of shipping containers and move 
uh-huh. large tools into their own shipping container room. There's no reason why I have to be uh, in a room with a four by eight laser cutter uh, or a fiber laser. You know, I could just run that with a power cord out in a yard in a 30 foot long or 40 foot long shipping container. I'm sure Laura would yeah. love that, but that's kind of one of the first things that I'm going to do when we have well, some paint it pink and put flowers on the side of it i'm sure she'll love it then i will paint it reflective because it is new mexico <laughs> so, so i had yes. i had a fantasy once when i had an urban shop that all my machines would have a flat steel top and they would be sitting on hydraulics so that they would just when they weren't in use they would drop down to the become part of the floor and this way, this way you could get a whole bunch oh, of machinery yeah. into a small shop and then just, you know, pump the one up that you needed to use and then sink it back down and, you know, pump up the adjacent one when you needed to use that. I love that kind idea. Like, <laughs> kind of like the TV that comes out at the foot of the bed that rises up out of that and then Same sinks idea. back in. Right. Yes. Yeah. You know, I worked for um, a photographer in uh, the early 2000s and he had like a, I don't know if it was like a dentist tool, but it was like a pneumatic table that would go way down to the floor and come way up, and we always built our sets on that. It didn't pop into the floor for going away, but, man, having everything on hydraulics or pneumatics is uh, pretty slick. I would like that. Now, can't you hack into your makerspace and operate the stuff in there remotely? <laughs> you, you need a little, you need a robot to, like, lay the sheets out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, it's... What I need is enough land that I could have like three or four shipping containers and then I could move things like a lot of resin printers out of the shop where I breathe and move the laser out of the shop where I breathe. Like I might buy a metal fiber laser, um, but, you know, so why the you me- come- burning metal is not cool in the same shop where I sit and program all day. You so could just hook you just, yourself you up just- to the ventilator. It's true. Just just <laughs> come just come out here, Ethan. I got space. Yeah, I would love to move to Washington. I got to find Laura a job out there. <laughs> the ah. feds need to stop hiring just for ice and maybe <laughs> hire some less Nazi positions. <laughs> oh, there, there's jobs. Just just come out. Yeah. Okay. There we go. <laughs> want to. She could she could start waiting table. No, no maybe not. not. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what, is, okay. what, what is, what is her skill? What does she do? Uh, she's a federal attorney. Oh, come on. We, th- they can work anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that was the idea, but, um, when <laughs> this is not a political podcast, but, uh, when Donald Trump took over kind of like, uh, he started disassembling all the good agencies and a lot of the federal attorney positions that are opening up right now are for ice, yeah. which we won't do. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's tough. A lot of, a lot of rats leaving the ship for lack of a better, uh, things. I don't know. Uh, we're, we're no, very lucky no, no, no. to be doing what we're doing. The, the rats are running the ship. Well, if, if she, if she wants to learn carpentry, I, I got a job for her. Yeah. <laughs> she does not. <laughs> very little. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to, this is my section. This is my section. Okay. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of uh, non-camera image making with light. Um, So uh, it is the homemade camera podcast, but that doesn't mean that we can't 
uh, branch out and maybe uh, make some images without um, uh, using cameras. And one of the first ones that I wanted to talk about is I, it took me a, a while to really kind of figure out what was going on. Um, but I was uh, and this was maybe two years ago. I was at Penland in North Carolina. Do you guys know what Penland is? Oh, yeah. Ethan, uh, Ethan, you Not know? Not at all. Nope. Okay. So uh, Penland is an, uh, is a craft school. It is an arts and craft school, but it's really craft. It started out with pottery and weaving. And it was uh, it's in the hills of North Carolina. It's near Spruce Pine, North Carolina. And um, it, it, which we're talking an hour um, east of Asheville. Okay. And it was a school that was really about preserving the folk crafts of the Highland area. And um, so, as I said, started out weaving pottery and then uh, they branched out. Uh, they've got printing presses there. And by the way, printing presses, I mean, like letterpress printing presses. They have all sorts of printmaking there. Um, blacksmithing, glass blowing. Yada, blacksmithing, glass. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I have a, a woman I used to uh, teach with in Jacksonville. Um, I, we just ran into her uh, when she was there, uh, when we were there. And we were just visiting. Um, there, there's a, a store, museum, gallery kind of place. And um, and then we went back to the to the school itself and um, ate in their little cafe and, and ran into um, Tanya Lee is her name. And she taught color theory there and, and color painting. Um, and but um, what uh, um, it, it's a great little little known, but nationally known at the same time school. Um, and it's not accredited they're not worried about you know you can't transfer credits um but it is a, just a place where you go and you you learn a craft you learn education over certification exactly yeah and there's a similar school in seattle called pratt fine arts center that i used to teach at but the penland okay. school is that's a really that's a really it's, great place and the people i know who teach there are at the top of their craft i mean it, it, right it may not get credit, but nobody nobody will poo-poo any classes you take there. It's a great You know, there's a very yeah. similar university that I attend. Um, it's called YouTube University. Uh, yes. You can learn anything. It's free and also not accredited. Yeah, but is it's it, totally now, different. Is that, <laughs> I, think, I think YouTube University is affiliated with School of Life, is it not? And the School of Hard Knocks. Hard Knocks. Aren't they part yeah. of, a, of a university system? Yes. Um, yes. That's where I learned okay. everything. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of rambling on to get to a very specific thing that I saw. And what it is, um, I think that this was somebody from the desert southwest who was doing these, and I did not grab his name. Uh, but they were gunpowder photographic prints. And... Um, there were some, I believe, if I remember correctly, and again, it's been a couple of years and I'm just trying to conjure them in my brain. Some of them were prints that were made in the enlarger 
and then were processed using the gunpowder process. And I'll tell tell you what that is in a second. And some of them were strictly gunpowder process. And and this is the idea. I, I believe this is the idea. Um, you put gunpowder on the photographic material and then you light that on fire and it makes light and exposes the the photograph in one way or another. Now, there may be like a glass surface between that would make sense so that the paper itself doesn't burn. Um, but it's, you know, I, I was thinking about this, you know, in, in the United States, we have the 4th of July coming up. Um, so sp- uh, sparklers will be available at everybody's Walmart. Um, not that I'm suggesting you go to Walmart or any store at this point. Um, but um, the idea of putting in in contact or close proximity with the photographic paper, something that creates a spark. Okay. So you could do that with electricity and arcing. Um, and it, it really created some very unusual imagery. Um, and, and now I, I, it, it was much, I mean, it, they were labeled as gunpowder prints and I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And then later on, I kind of, said oh yeah this is the way they do it it's got to be the way that they do it and so i'm uh uh i'm kind of intrigued on that i'm not sure whether that's something that i'm interested in in doing but anyway go on i don't know what's really interesting about it is you're basically putting the the, you're spreading the light right tight up close to the uh, right emulsion which is kind of a cool idea there's a yeah. there's a sculptural equivalent. I met a sculptor who developed a technique for doing repose, which you normally do by hammering, you know, a million times on a sheet of metal uh, it, with a back behind it to eventually create a detailed three dimensional, uh, you know, surface, uh, which uh-huh. could have it could depict imagery or whatever. But this person, they basically developed thunder. a technique where they 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 made a back. Uh, they made a negative essentially out of uh, some sort of sturdy material. Then they put a sheet of sheet metal uh, on top of that, and then a sheet of plastic explosive on top of that. <laughs> and it was such a powerful explosion that they actually had to work at some special army military firing range, you know. At- <laughs> but they would get instant repose out of, uh, you know, wow, out of metal. Uh- <laughs> And I suppose if you were working with something, you know, uh, uh, plastic explosives, you could you could shape the the charge and and really get down to minute levels of force. Right. Um, well, this was a technically an actual sheet of of explosive that was even, and then they put oh. it on a flat sheet so they would get you know the same force over yeah. the whole thing all at once. Anyway, it's pretty right. crazy. Yeah. But I think yeah. that what you're describing so, is really interesting, and it makes me yeah. think about, well, another thing. So I have a – I heat my home with a stove that has a glass door, and mm-hmm. it you know, it gets dirty over time. But you get this – you get f- an actual flame light. So now you're making me think about doing relatively long – you know, rel- an exposure where you, you would basically use something like fire on one side as the uh, light source and get that interesting textured – light instead of a uniform light might be fun you know something else that just struck me along because in my brain you were talking about that that stove which is actually a really wonderful 
you can cook pizzas on that, right? Isn't there? You can. A pizza you can yeah. Right. yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, it was. It's really li like a focal point in their house. It's really kind of cool. Um, the um, uh, I, I was thinking of the soot, and, and my brain just did a little spin. And we were talking about pencils. So you get matte photographic paper, and you pencil areas. And before you develop, you wash off the graphite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or so well, and then you expose it to light, and then you wash off the graphite um, and uh, and develop it. Yeah. And maybe we uh, could work, work an etch a sketch into this somehow. Right. Well, I mean, I, I'm just yeah. <laughs> well, but but uh, I I think that there's. There, I mean, once again, working with non-camera image making with light, and yeah. I, this mm -hmm. that would certainly work all, uh, along the same lines. So, yeah, so an interesting, and that rem reminds me that the first pencil was a burnt stick. So yeah, yeah, right, right. So you could do it with soot. You could do it with some other things as well. Um, I, Ethan, I think this is you uh, interesting for a number of ways. Is one clearly um, going off on this tangent of you know, non-camera image-making techniques is just kind of talking about how you make film, right? And so eventually this is going to go back to cameras, I assume. Um, the other thing is I have also seen gunpowder prints that have nothing to do with photographic paper, um, but like a guy finally sprinkling gunpowder in a pattern, um, I think it was a dragon, uh, on a giant piece of paper, and then, you know, it just kind of looks like a dusty piece of paper until he lights the match. And then the whole thing explodes and he shakes off the burnt gunpowder and it has burnt like charcoal marks into this giant uh, mural. I think it was going around Facebook or YouTube a couple of years back. Um, it's very interesting. I don't know. So is he, that draw, is he drawing with the gunpowder or like yeah, what's exactly. the image making? OK, that's yeah. Or, that's or like cool. painting with kind of gunpowder, or, you know, sort of sprinkling. Right. A, a fuse comes to mind or perhaps, a, you know, like yeah. brick bricks of firecrackers. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've learned my lesson. Yeah. No more firecrackers <laughs> for Ethan. Yeah. Um, uh, OK, so so one of the other things that I was looking at um, was the idea of anthrotype. And in fact, um, as I was walking this morning, I uh, um, decided I was going to talk about this. But uh, as I was walking this morning, I was listening to the Sunny 16 backing paper. And uh, it was the one that was released on Monday, May 18th, 2020. Uh, and um, they were talking about doing some anthrotype. And anthrotype is the idea of putting vegetable matter on paper letting it dry covering up areas now you could do it like a photogram where you're putting a leaf or something on it but covering up areas um and then exposing it to a good amount of sunlight like hours and hours and hours if not days of sunlight um and where it's covered over so the vegetable material um will then react with the sunlight and except where it's covered over and so you can you can make prints using that material um and um uh rachel 
uh, Brewster Wright from Sunny 16 was saying that she was using uh, paprika as as one of the materials and um you know uh, so that there are many different materials that are like this that would react to the sunlight in one way or another so the, it's the idea of covering up an area so this makes me think a lot about um my friend gunner used to um make contact prints in the sun for like a week on just regular, um, what do you say? Uh, not cardboard. Uh, what's the colored craft paper that kids use? Construction, construction paper. paper yeah. yeah, it would just bleach out, and he would put a, either like a paper negative over it, or um, you know, a, a eight by ten negative, and he made these ridiculously good prints on construction paper, just sitting in the Albuquerque sun for a week or a month. Um, it made me think, like, oh, maybe I should take a year-long exposure in an 8x10 camera just on straight construction paper. And that made me think about, like, invisible inks or ultraviolet inks or inks that are mm -hmm. not particularly stable. What if you were to just coat a piece of paper in a really unstable ink that, you know, light could bleach out the ink? Um, which, I, I mean, I guess is photography, right? But very slow. So, so right. this, this brings to mind an idea where you combine different techniques. Whoop, what happened? Okay, oh, so I'm sorry. I, got it. I, I just, got it. yeah, yeah so, I just, so a, a link. Um, I'm so, sure people have, I'm sure people have done this before, but uh, the typical sort of direct exposure where you put a bunch of uh, botanical things on a, on a sheet of paper and expose it to light, um, it's fun and graphic and it can be really beautiful. Uh, but it occurs to me that if you, you could develop a double exposure technique where this you have a, a normal image and then you cover up a bunch of it and expose it a different way. And then you end up with a with a normal image that's uh, forming the negative areas that were covered. Um, so so I have a friend who does really great textile work, which is using essentially printmaking technique from Japan. Um, and it's it's basically cutting patterns out of paper and then using a rice um, paste resist to dye the fabric so that only the places that the paper was protecting from the rice paste end up printing in a certain color. And you can do multiple passes and make really beautiful things. Well, the same idea goes with combining the non-camera image making with camera image making to make uh, really, you could make really interesting double exposures with a very graphic element and a very representational element in balance, if you may, if that makes sense. Sure. It reminds Absolutely. me of uh, Dave Allen's uh, pictures where he's printing a four by five in the dark room and then laying his iPhone on the page and uh, contact printing the iPhone shot of the scene. I think they're really beautiful and interesting. Huh. But it's, uh, I it's don't think I've seen those. A very modern photoresist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the iPhone. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I want to give credit. Um, I did finally find the, the li link I was looking for. Um, the, the guy who was exhibiting at Penland was Christopher Colville, C-O-L-V-I-L-L-E, um, and it's Christopher, uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R-C-O-L-V-I-L-L-E.com. And the link will be in the show notes. And it's the these um, gunpowder 
um, images. Uh, there's some that are on there and I, um, I really need to, uh, to take a better look. Uh, but there are lots of different, um, uh, techniques on this website, but one of them, uh, I, I believe is the gunpowder, uh, techniques that we're looking at. And, and, um, um, one of the things that's interesting to me about these types of things is that when you shoot with a lens, you know, per, okay, so say we're using a view camera, we're we're looking on the ground glass to see pretty much exactly what your film is going to see. We focus, we tilt, you know, we use movements and we do all that type of stuff so that we have a lot of control over the outcome. But with this type of thing, you you have much less control over the outcome. Um, the what you expect is going to be one thing and what comes out may be completely not completely different, but it may uh, it may burn brighter. And so that there's more of the area fogged and it may be, you know, that type of thing. So I wonder how very interesting. I wonder how lighter fluid would work. Yeah. I think that you could do a similar thing. Now, one of the things that gunpowder is that it is that it burns quickly and and Very um, bright. It, and and is bright, but it's gone, right? Um, whereas lighter fluid, I think, would be a longer burn, and it would be, it, you know, essentially you're going to need some sort of neutral density filter, uh, or maybe not neutral but you need a, a a filter of some sort to reduce the amount of light that's hitting it. Ethan um, has also you know, learned assume... his lesson around lighter fluid. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. No doubt. All right. No, so yeah. a glass tray and a, a suitable environment, like a metal shelf. Yeah. Since, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, one thing, one thing. I mean, of course, you can just use the sun to do this type of thing. But this idea that you'd get some texture out of it um, is it is it's interesting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the restaurant business. Like, does it really make something taste better to bring it out into the restaurant and set it on fire? You know, but it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. One of the things that I always, um, I often will order fajitas at a restaurant. And my wife absolutely despises. She's allergic to onions and and garlic, anything in the Allen family. And um, so the idea of all of this aerosolized onion and garlic coming out to our table is just is is horrible for her. So um, so what we you know I say let it sizzle in the back. It's okay to let it sizzle in the back. Bring it out not sizzling, and generally that'll uh, you know, it does not change the flavor. Um, so, so yeah. So, okay. So, um, one of the other things that I was thinking of, and I, I'm just throwing things out, uh, as projects that I'm interested in, um, you, you, the creation of a camera obscura, um, with ground glass and then photo photographing the ground glass. So this is, you know, uh, yeah, that exists. Could, it's called the I'm back. Yeah, right. Exactly. That was uh, what Ethan was talking about before. But um, I, I kind of like the idea of uh, now, you know, we're I, I was saying that it, it's a camera obscura 
with a pinhole, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, maybe what I do is I build a camera mount for the back of um, of one of my large format cameras um, so that, you know, I mean, it, you can also do it with an iPhone, right? You know, um, but well, uh, making often a, a lot of inter- reflections back and forth. I mean, I get, right. under, I get under my dark cloth with the iPhone and I have a hard time making a good image that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have that 45 degree angle viewer that I just absolutely love. I know it drives Ethan in particular nuts, but I have a 45 degree viewer on the back of my, uh, tower press camera, my, um, what is it? What is it again? What's the tower press camera? Uh, the, you know, the, with the cambo reflex somehow glued to it. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you know, but because it was glued to it, I got it for about $250 less than. Right. Uh, and you could have sold what, that reflex viewer for 250 bucks. <laughs> yes. You probably still can. And I recommend you do because I hate them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. I know. What, why do you why do you hate them, Ethan? What's wrong? No, with them? I don't know. I mean, they're fine. They're just like you know. I always use things in the field. I don't do too much studio stuff, and I like things to be upside down. It makes me concentrate on form. It's a little bit of a cliched thing to say, but it it does. Yeah. Sure. Well, oh, as, long, as long as it, you're on a tripod, it it's fine. It gets a little weird if you're trying to walk around. Okay. Okay, but but I it, to me it's not that it's it's uh, right side up that is important that's that's nice i'm gonna say that's nice i like that but what it does is it gets me out from under the cape and it you know it gives me oxygen to breathe out in the world um now the problem is that i can't go to the corners in the way that i would love to to be able to check the corners and stuff like that so there are some negatives to it um but uh, but to me, being able to look down that thing with one eye and and really checking, checking focus, checking composition. Um, I, yeah, it does not. I think it's a plus. I think it's a plus. So. Uh, so anyway. Most of the time OK. Around here, um, I'm fine with just a, a light shade around the ground glass. And yeah, well, a fast well, lens where, where it gets tricky is when the lens starts to get yeah. Yeah, uh, but re- remember, uh, uh, I live sunny sixteen. I don't live in hazy f four uh, for that. So, uh, Ethan, at this point, you were wanting to talk about a camera lucida, right? Oh yeah. Um, do you guys know what this is? The camera lucida? No. Lucida. Um, so instead of a camera obscura, which is a dark box, this is. Uh, translates to light box from the Latin, but basically it's a pelical mirror uh, that you set up at 45 degrees to what you're looking at. And so um, you can see down onto your table and you see what you're drawing. And then you can also see overlaid on that, what you're looking at. It's much like a range finder, you know, in in, it uses a 45 degree pelical mirror. Um, Joe Van Cleve built one, way back when which was a pretty popular youtube video for artists and i think it's kind of like an interesting i don't know maybe you'd say cheat but uh an interesting tool for drawing and sketching um and maybe would have some photographic purposes as well 
And I have a link to an image, uh, an, an etching of somebody using using one, um, and it will be in the show notes. So uh, there will be something something there for you guys to see. Um, but yeah, okay. So uh, essentially, it's uh, half silvered, right? Um, so, you can, uh, so you can see through it. Is that that's the idea? So that you look straight at yourself. Yeah, and you right. also see. Uh, the other yeah so in other words you can trace exactly essentially. You look straight right. at so, something and then you can see your hand tracing them on the piece of paper yeah right yeah so we would call this a 50 50 plate beam splitter uh, okay. but yeah it's, it's the same thing that's like in most range finders that or in Canada, the main viewing image uh or yeah yeah right right so okay yeah um that that's yeah uh there's something to this now were you thinking about this photographically or were you going back to your um you know the original hand graphy uh yeah um, graphite graphy monography (laughs) monography yeah well there are lots of monographs you know any any one writing but yes hand done so does it um, does it okay. make does it make sense? So we've talked about cameras that use that technology to create three separate images for overlay for for color separation. But yeah. does it make sense to make a camera that takes a pictures you know at ninety degrees to each other at the same time on the same piece of film so that you could use that mirror to basically shoot you know a portrait with something else in the background overlaid kind of i mean it, it's sort of a ridiculous useless oh, idea but <laughs> but there'd be a thing you could do maybe that would be fun with that uh like so I like it. yeah in other words that you could take portraits where the background was always the you know a, a close-up of the grass in front of the camera right like an in-camera <laughs> instantaneous double exposure exactly right i like it <laughs> maybe not a great product great thought experiment <laughs> right okay so um there's um uh, another uh thing that i wanted to talk about and this is the this is the last of the non-camera image making uh with a light thing um when i was in my 20s i worked for a courier company and i owned the vehicle and i drove around and i had their sticker on the side of my vehicle And there was a point at which I quit driving for them and I became uh, a dispatcher. And I pulled the sticker off my vehicle. So um, I'd had the, the, you know, I bought the the Isuzu pickup that I drove 172,000 miles. Um, I drove that, um, I bought that new and the sticker went on when it was new. And when it came off, my paint, had been out in the world for three years at that point and or three or four years now that I think about it and the sticker came off and the paint was glossy underneath the sticker but it was um underneath the where it wasn't underneath the sticker it was very very dull the paint was very very dull and so that was that was just a masking that went on and it, it saved my car from, you know, the surface impact of the world and the UV light that was coming from the sun and all that type of other thing. But if uh, another uh, idea with, along the same line is 
I wear these this set of t-shirts to walk my dog each day. And like the shoulders are lighter than like the waist area because the shoulders get more light. And I work in the yard in these t-shirts and stuff like that. But you you know, you get that <coughs> excuse me, that bleaching of the uh from the sun. I mean, I have the opposite effect on the underside of my T-shirt shoulders. (laughs) You mean from from your corrosive armpit uh, material or something? But yeah. (laughs) So so what I was thinking is now you have to figure out something that's going to fade relatively easy. But if you were to take, say, a brand new T-shirt... And you cut a stencil and you put it in the sun um, for a period of time. And you could do that, you know, by hanging it in a window or something like that. Um, You would then and we we see these types of things in store displays where something gets left, you know, and all the the magenta gets bleached out of it. And so you're left with cyan and yellow uh, ink, all the magenta and black. Is, is lost in you so you so you get that real faded uh look well you could do that in a pattern um you could do that theoretically with the negative you know an eight by ten or four by five or maybe you could even make a a transparent you know a um uh an acetate transparency of something and so you could put that in the ink you know or not the ink what am i trying to say the um the the dyes in the fabric and you can affect them in different ways so i was just wanting to to just to to explore just to just to think about different ways of making images that were not camera related so much so i just came up um, with another one that i'm actually gonna try okay. okay so i have uh glow in the dark 3d printer filament i bet that i could print a film holder with a uh, glow in the dark surface where the film would go and expose this um, and then take it into the dark and look at the negative glowing in an image. I would like to try uh, this. Okay. Maybe I'll sure. try that today. Sure. Cool. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fun. And I was just thinking that this beam splitter camera, another way to use it would be you could have a camera that used two different focal lengths simultaneously um and and projected the two images onto the same piece of film at the same time that you could start playing with with all kinds of stuff and another idea is a mirror with a hole in it so that one lens projected you know the background and the other one projected the whatever's through the hole uh onto the onto the film nick that's too crazy Ah, I think it would be great. It'd be really fun. And with the zoom lenses on both of them, you could, like, fine-tune it. Yeah, I agree. So, who would you like to talk about this week? What, um... Uh, what, what shout-outs do you have? Ethan, you want to start off? Yeah, I think um, I've mentioned them a bunch in this podcast, so it's worth mentioning 
um, in this segment is David Allen is making a series called Pretty Pictures. You can see on his website, link in the description, uh, where he's masking a photo that he's printing in the darkroom, uh, but he's masking it with his iPhone and he's using an inverted image on the iPhone. So you get like a little tiny iPhone copy of the actual picture that he's printing on film. It's, you know, one, they're beautiful on their own uh, and interesting, you know, compositionally and tonally. But like, two, I think it's a really good comment on where we are in society. It makes you think about uh, digital and analog processes together. I really love that. And then I also just wanted to share a link to Joe Van Cleve's um, camera lucida video where he builds one of these and uses it to sketch. I think it's very interesting and might be a useful tool to a lot of people uh, building some cameras. Throw that in um, in in our notes and I'll make sure it gets into it's in the notes um, the show notes. Okay, um, Nick, uh, who would you like to talk about? So I'm fascinated by an image that just came up on a discussion uh, on our Homemade Camera Podcast Facebook group. Uh, Francois Laverdure put this crazy-looking Pinocchio slit camera that he made out of junk from around the house. It's really cool-looking. Uh, you just should go look at it, but it's it's like some sort of robot Pinocchio thing. And then he also has a detail of a of a, of a sliding shutter release that uses a clothespin which looks pretty cool. But I want to read his description of this uh, micro 2C camera. He says, I now present my new hand-built camera, all done with hand tools and a drill. It's made entirely from junk. No camera parts were used. The lens is a duplet made from reading glasses. The body is made mm -hmm. from leftovers from orange crates and paint stir sticks from the hardware store that I had in the garage. The shutter release is a clothespin. It takes 35 millimeter film in a horizontal format. It's got an automatic baffle that covers the slit of the focal plane shutter when you reset it. Wow. It, it looks really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, I will say it is sitting on a tripod in our photograph, so it is not quite uh, fully devoid of photographic um <laughs> oh, all you need is uh, a quarter, photographic a quarter, junk, quarter but, yeah. twenty bolt and a, and a hunk of something to make it try. Right, yeah. you're right. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just uh, uh, nitpicking. This thing looks really, really cool. So, uh, so yeah, we've got a. Uh, I think that we need to jump more into that. Um, my person that I would like to talk about this week is actually. Um, uh, it's part of the series that, uh, of recognizing people who have been positive in, uh, in particular in my, uh, photography and camera building life. Um, my, uh, a middle school teacher, I, I went to a little bit different. I went to what they termed at the time an open school. Um, and it was an alternative school, um, where um, rather than moving from classroom to classroom every year, I stayed in the same classroom sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And um, then there were there was a mix of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders in that classroom. Um, and um, you know sometimes people would transfer to another class and all that type of stuff. But my teacher uh, at that time was a guy named Jim Selby. Now he was a former Air Force. 
I don't have any clue what his rank was or what his job was in the Air Force, but he was career. So he had done uh, 20 years in the Air Force. And then when he got out, he was a butcher. And then at some point he decided to use his GI education and went back and got a teaching degree at the age of like 50 or something like that. And um, he was a little bit different from other teachers that I'd had in that he he embodied um, some of the things that I, some of the principles that I try to embody in my education or in my teaching. And that is that you don't teach a class, you teach individuals. And so he was really clear on where everybody was in the classroom at any given time, not necessarily in position, but in their educational goals. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, one of the things he had a, a, a dark room in the classroom. And um, so that was where I uh, made my first pinhole cameras and my first, you know, oatmeal cameras and stuff like that. But he also had a press camera that we used and um, we had that dark room that was available in that um, in that classroom, which really had an influence on me um, and really it was a uh, it was something that I could go and do and calm down and uh, it was it really made a happy place for me. So uh, so I want to say thanks to Jim Selby, a middle school teacher in the late 70s at Harrison Open School in Minneapolis. So uh, I don't know if he's still around. If he is, thank you very much. I think that he would be about 90 now. So, um, uh, you know, he would be in that um, high risk group. But uh, even if he is not around and I can't say it to his face, I want to say it to the world. Thank you, Jim Selby. So um, we also want to thanks, thank, uh, give out thanks to Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios. He's the one who made our music and allows us to use it each week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. 